Well, our Testament reading tonight, we turn again to Romans chapter 14 and reading the latter half, verses 13 down to verse 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat or drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. And there again is the holy word of God that endures forever. And may the Lord bless it to our hearts in its reading and preaching. King David wrote Psalm 133. And he spoke about how beautiful it was when brethren dwell together in unity. Certainly in our homes as parents, We are joyful and rejoicing when all our children are getting along just wondrously and without any kind of argument or debate. We know in our homes how quickly uh, that kindness and that unity and that oneness of our children can break down. In our house especially it happens when we play a game like Monopoly. It doesn't take long for tempers to get irritated and exposed. And that blessing of fun and gathering together is quickly ruined. It is a beautiful thing when the brothers dwell together in unity. Jesus himself even prayed this in John 17, 20-23. He prayed earnestly that we all as His people, as those whom He has redeemed. He prayed earnestly that we would all be one as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Isn't that an amazing prayer? We struggle. Some people use that to impress upon the sinfulness of denominations. I don't think that's 
its right application. I think it's talking about the church, the body of Christ, the local assembly. What a beautiful thing when unity dwells within the congregation of the Lord. A oneness and a togetherness. And we know the Holy Spirit is given for that very purpose. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about the unity that we have in the diversity of gifts. And how in Corinth, the problem there was is that some people were elevating their gifts above others. And it was creating disunity. It was creating spite. And it was also creating coveting. People were saying, my gift isn't as impressive as yours. So I guess... uh, I don't have what it takes to be a member here. That sort of thought and thinking. And there too, the Holy Spirit has been given. And we read in that chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, how the Holy Spirit strives within the body of Christ to build this unity, this oneness in Christ, even with all our diversity. What an amazing thing, not just with our cultural backgrounds, but with all of our idiosyncrasies and our lesser, and, or uh, may I say it this way, the way in which we think about ourselves in comparison with another in their faith, even with all of those issues, a unity can be had with the Holy Spirit at work, when we realize that we are all baptized, as he says, all baptized into one body. Though we are many members, we are one body, even as Christ is. That there is a testimony of what God is striving for. And yet with, with all of those three things that I've just mentioned, we know what a struggle it is to have blessed unity. And perhaps the one thing that we don't realize most interferes with this is when our convictions and our strong preferences and our liberty of conscience becomes a great hindrance in that unity and oneness. And that's what Paul is dealing with in chapters 14 and 15 of this letter to the Romans. Liberty of conscience and how we are to work through the issues of what we are strongly convicted about. And we have many things that we disagree on. And those disagreements become great hindrances. Are Christians allowed to drink alcohol? Should we eat meat offered to idols? That, those are the two big things in Paul's day. But they reflect other matters. Special days. He mentions that. Uh, you're not on Twitter. I mentioned this last week, but I'll bring it up again. You're not on Twitter. You don't see the arguing and the sarcastic rhetoric that gets raised between Christians over whether or not we should celebrate Christmas and Easter. We think that's new? Well, it isn't. It was the very thing infecting the church in Rome. 
and the, the issues of Jews who came to faith and all their life they had been participating in those special feast days and Sabbaths that the Lord had organized to testify to their holiness and to the glory and work of Christ. And suddenly they have to give it all up. Or to put it in more modern times, a Muslim is converted and should he be made to eat all kinds of meat? (laughs) And we can hold people in spite of And we can hinder the unity of God's people. The list goes on. And I'm mentioning again so that we're aware these are matters of conscience that often hinder unity. Tattoos. What are your feelings there? Vaccinations. The church is great on that. We can exercise our liberty of conscience but we can also inflict harm in doing that. Wearing of masks. You know, the the list today is, is endless. And if you note what Paul doesn't do here, and I think this is important for us to grasp, he does not say, cookie cutter Christianity is the way forward. Uniformity will bring unity. Really? Do we really think that's the way forward? But he doesn't. He doesn't say that. Nor, and and it comes out in our text, nor does he say, let's just agree to disagree. Let's not worry about these things. Let's not debate over these issues. Let's not bring up those subjects that cause division. No. No. What he's making us aware more than anything is that our unity within the body of Christ does not depend upon uniformity or compromise or quietly avoiding the subjects that distress people. Our unity depends on our union to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must look to Christ. And in looking to Christ, we must appreciate both who He is and what He has done to come and redeem us and to bring us into His body. That's been His message all along about what the Gospel is and how that Gospel has united together Jew and Gentile. Well, certainly, if a Jew and a Gentile can be united together in the body of Christ, so can we who disagree on wine and meat and special days and tattoos and vaccinations and masks. Can't we? That's what He's arguing here. That our unity depends on the Lord Jesus Christ, our union to Him, and our apprehension of His mercy in the Gospel. Because when those two things are in the forefront of our thoughts, then as He comes here in verses 13 to 23 of this chapter, He comes and He says, then your love for each other in Christ will increase. Paul here has been concerned about how secondary issues become so pronounced 
that those who are stronger in the faith, those who have a conscience that is informed and they have no problems with liberties in certain things that are in this world, he's concerned how those stronger in the faith end up destroying and not edifying the weaker in faith. And the weaker in faith are those who have strong convictions No, we can't do this. It's wrong. It'll be sinful if we do. And on those secondary issues, he says, such a person with such strong convictions that would point the finger and judge another believer who would be saying, oh, you're worried about things that are are not essential. We have the liberty to do these things. We have the liberty to drink wine. We don't have the liberty to get drunk. We have the liberty to eat meat. We don't have the liberty, you know, to be uh, violent uh, to get that meat. We, we have the liberty to... And on and on. And it's those who with the strong convictions that come and say, no, this is wrong. We can't be doing it. And if you do, it's sinful. He's seeing them as the weaker. As the weaker in the faith. But the strong can themselves end up destroying and not edifying them. And that's why he's writing here. How do we edify? How do we build up? And last week we saw from the first 12 verses what I called the four laws of liberty. (laughs) That we need to learn to receive one another where they are in their faith. Not having those great high expectations of where we are. Don't we do that sometimes even with our children as parents? When we see them, we give them a task to do and they haven't done it to the level of which we would have done it. And we come along and we say, no, no, it, it, it isn't right. You've got to do it this way. And you've got to be careful as a parent that you don't discourage them or grieve them or put them in that place where they just want to give up. Well, the same thing with a Christian in the church. That the stronger are coming along and just looking at the weaker and saying, nah, you, you're so legalistic. You, you, you don't understand what Christ has done. We can put them down. No, receive one another. Don't pass judgments. Honor one another's devotion to the Lord. And be ready yourself for that day of judgment. Because you're going to be judged for everything. The the, the laws of liberty do not grant us a flippancy or sarcastic attitude toward one another. No, they're, they're there for us to be building up one another. And, and from that, we come in verses 13 to 23 to what I call the law of love. And just in case you're wondering, I borrowed those two titles from the New King James Version of the Bible because that's the heading above each section. Well, that's really what it is, if you want to put it in that way. The law of love. Christ's love is working in us. And Christ's love is at work in all of us. Are we exercising the law of Christ's love? Is Christ's love in you? You look to yourself. 
and ask yourself this, what is governing your attitude toward another when it comes to the matters of liberty of conscience? Is it self-love or is it the love of Christ? And that's a great issue to wrestle with. I exhort you, I exhort you to look to the love of Christ. Ask yourself, is it in me? Can I love this person who loves the Lord, who has been redeemed by the Lord? You know, if your answer is, oh, yeah, but... (laughs) You know, there's there's something wrong with the love that's in you that needs to be checked. Are you in the love of Christ? And so that law of love comes and meets us here. And the first law we have in verses 13 to 15 is this. Do not put stumbling blocks before the weak. In other words, don't put offenses before those who haven't attained the liberty that you walk in. Resolve this. It's very interesting how Paul has worded this and again bringing it over into the English language. uh, we, We don't see all the nuances, but it's like he's saying this, replace your tendency to judge each other with this judgment. When he says, therefore let us not judge one another, but rather resolve this. That word resolve is exercise this judgment instead. And what is the judgment you're to be exercising? That I will not put a stumbling block. I will not put an offense or cause my brother, my sister to fall. I don't want to see their faith in the Lord fail. And note here what Paul isn't doing. He does not avoid the discussion He even goes on in verse 14 to make clear his own position. Isn't it interesting? Paul doesn't sit there and say, well, they have their opinion, I have mine. What does he say? Here is my position. I know and I am convinced by the Lord Jesus there is nothing unclean of itself. Now where did he get that from? You go to Mark. And this is in respect of dietary laws and foods and that which can be and can may not be eaten. But you go to Mark 7, and there Jesus is talking about how it isn't what we eat and what we bring into our bodies that causes offense and sin within us. Because what we eat is expelled from us. It's what comes out of our hearts and mouths. That, that's the context. But you get there to verse 19, and you see that by this he purified all foods. (laughs) And, And Paul is owning that. He is saying, yes, I as a Jew have come to understand that those dietary restrictions were for Israel's old covenant setting of displaying a holiness before the the world, of guarding their way in life before God. But that is no longer needed. He makes clear his position. But he also knows that many others haven't come to this liberty. There's others who still view some foods as unclean. 
And so what is he resolved? I'm not going to judge them in the weakness of their faith. I'm going to make sure the law of love is at work where I will not put a stumbling block in their way. I don't want to see them fall. I want to walk in love with that person. And verse 15, And if they are grieved by my liberty, then I'm going to put my liberty aside. Wow! That's not a temperament you see often in the church today, is it? My liberty is that I can't do this, and if I do this, I'm going to sin. What? (laughs) I can't put aside this. And Paul is saying, look, if you call it a liberty, then you understand that there's nothing impure about it. And you can't put aside your liberty for a brother? The problem isn't with your brother. The problem is in your heart. You're no longer walking in love. You know, the picture should be the exact opposite. When we know that there's something that we do that offends another, we should be going to each other and saying, look, for your sake, I'm I'm putting this aside. And everybody be putting aside their liberties for the sake of one another. We don't have that problem, do we? (laughs) We have the opposite. Everyone is elevating their liberties and saying, don't tell me to change because this is what I believe is my conscience. Right. And and, and Paul is saying, if your brother is grieved because of your food and you continue to walk in it, despiting him, that's the, the idea, then you're not walking in love. And this brings this challenge, this law of love. Do not put a stumbling block before the weak. It brings this challenge. What is more important than your liberty? What is more important is that you don't cause your brother or sister to sin. You don't put an offense. Paul is an example of this. You go to 1 Corinthians 8, the very end of that chapter. He said, if my eating meat causes a brother to sin, then I will never eat meat again. Because I don't want him to stumble. Isn't that a sacrifice? Peter had to learn that lesson. And these, I'm, I'm focused on them because as Jews, these were big, big issues. Remember Peter in Acts 10. He was going to be called to go into the house of a Gentile. And he suffered for it. He had a lot of Jewish believers who said, what were you doing in the house of a Gentile? Acts 10 and 11 is all about it. And he speaks about how he had to learn the lesson from God himself that what God has cleansed you must not call common. These are people that Christ has come to bring his salvation to receive them. And that's where he says there in in this passage, in verse 15, Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. 
that your willingness to sacrifice and not put a stumbling block before your brother or sister is done so because you've got the gospel in mind. You're bearing up the gospel in your life. You're looking and saying, Christ sacrificed Himself for this one. I might see them as weak in their faith, But I will not elevate my liberty above the love that Christ has for them. You see, love never disregards the weak conscience. Love limits its own liberty for the sake of the gospel. That's not easy. But that's the first law of love. And the second meets us in verses 16 to 18. Do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Therefore, when you grasp the principles that he's just mentioned about not putting a stumbling block in front of your brother and sister, uh, but rather upholding the, the gospel in your thoughts concerning them, therefore... Do not let your good be spoken of as evil. In other words, do not allow your liberty, what you know is right, do not allow it to be flaunted in the face of the weaker believer to their harm. that's, That's what Paul is getting at there. Don't allow what you consider to be a freedom in Christ a secondary issue to be something that is spoken of as evil. Bear in mind the kingdom of God. What made for your righteousness? What made for your peace with God? What makes for your joy in the Holy Spirit? The very things that he mentions in verse 17. The kingdom of God It's not about eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is not about your liberty of conscience. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What makes for those things? Is it your conscience over whether or not a Christian should have tattoos? (laughs) Whether or not we should wear masks? Really? We're talking about righteousness. The righteousness of God that has met us in Christ Jesus. We're talking about peace with God that has been accomplished by what Christ did on the cross. Not what I do with my arm or my face. (laughs) I'm being very pointed here. What are we called to pursue? We have been called to pursue and seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We've not been called to pursue our liberty of conscience. And when we realize that, then we realize we serve Christ in this way, as he goes on to say, for he who serves Christ in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, the one who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Our liberties are secondary matters, not primary 
And if we make the kingdom of God primary and we so serve Christ even by setting aside some of our liberties for the welfare of the faith of others, God will be pleased. God will look and say, thank you for thinking and loving them in their weakness. That's what my son did. That's what Christ did for us. He even taught His disciples that very thing. In John 13, in the foot washing, and He comes around as a servant to wash everyone else's feet. And the disciples, in all of their pride and all of their arrogance, looked at Him and were astounded that He would come and so bow before them and lift up their feet and clean their feet that Peter himself said, No, Lord, you can't do this. He never offered to do it himself though, did he? He just said, no, you can't. And Jesus said, if I don't, if I don't serve you in this way, you have no part with me. And then Peter wants to be even more. He says, well, then, then wash all of me. And Jesus said, no, you're already clean. Just let me, in humility, wash your feet. And pride comes and says, no. You know, the same thing happens with our liberty of conscience. It is most often our pride that comes and says, no, I I can't give it up. And he says, no, if you serve Christ in this matter, if you make the kingdom of God primary, if you serve Christ in the setting aside of your liberties for the welfare of the faith of others, God will be pleased and men will approve you. What a witness. And isn't that what Christ said to His disciples and what He says to the church? As I have done to you, so you also do for one another. Now, I don't doubt many of you have got some other questions and examples and that whole, what I call, Yabat syndrome that we can come up with. But here's the law of love that says, I don't want my liberties to be spoken of as evil because I have harmed another by exercising them. I want Christ to be glorified and lifted up. And if it means setting aside my liberties, then I do so for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, for His kingdom. That's the law of love. And the third law comes out in verses 19 to 21. Do not destroy the work of God. You see it there in verse 20. All these do nots, do nots. The the law of love is filled with them. But twice Paul uses the word destroy in in this section. Back up in verse 15 and as well now in verse 20. And it's not that you're destroying someone's faith. It's not that you're making them an unbeliever. Destroy is used in the opposite of the word edify. In verse 19, 
Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. Destroy is used in opposite of that word that means to build up. Is this building up the faith of another? That is the matter that ought to be before us in our exercise of our liberties. Am I going to build up another's faith? And and this is the context in in. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 that Paul leveled before them. Yes, you have knowledge. Paul says, I have knowledge. Verse 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord that there's nothing unclean about this. That knowledge is with me. But what's the danger of that kind of knowledge? 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1. Knowledge puffs up. But love edifies. (laughs) You see this law of love. That, That if my knowledge, if all that's doing is making me think that I am superior to this other brother and sister and that their problem is their faith is weak and they just need to buck up, then the knowledge that you have about your liberties has only puffed up your heart and is not building up another's faith. And that's the challenge. Would you, and he goes on here to to say that, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. Would you so exalt your freedom to eat, to drink, to cast off some feast day in spite of a weaker brother to prove a point? Does your liberty of conscience move you to the place where you want to prove a point to someone? That's not the law of love. That's not building up anyone except your own pride. That's what he's getting at here. Don't destroy the work of God. Don't tear down that precious faith of a weaker believer. Don't tear down that work that God is doing to strive and conform this brother or sister into the image of Christ, all to satisfy your conscience. This isn't easy, is it? (laughs) This is a challenge to our hearts. Rather, pursue, verse verse 21, Pursue what makes for peace. Sorry, verse 19. Pursue what makes for peace. And what makes for peace? Well, this law of love that says that even though this is pure and this is okay to do, that if it is offending my brother, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to destroy the work of God because God's at work in them. And my pride and my conscience may interfere. Pursue what makes for peace. It's very interesting. Most of us know Hebrews 12, 14, but we only know it in part. Most of us know Hebrews 12, 14 that says, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But there's another word there too. 
Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And I was looking at that and realizing that it's not just holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The antecedent is both pursuing peace and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Yes, all things can be determined to be clean, but that which is pure itself can become evil if you are causing the faith of your brother or sister to fall. And here again is where the law of love kicks in in verse 21, and it says this, I will sacrifice this liberty to help them become strong in the faith. And if it means... A hundred conversations peacefully done, then I will pursue what makes for peace and set aside my liberty till we are coming together in these things. Because this is good. It is good neither to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. This is good. And you see there again, we are pursuing God's glory and not our own. The law of love. Let me rehearse them before we come to the last one. Do not put stumbling blocks before the weak. Do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Do not destroy the work of God. And last, Verses 23 and 20, 22 and 23. Do not condemn yourself by your liberty. Now, I know that's not how it's written there. But that's the sentiment of these verses. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Do you have a strong, informed faith? Then exercise it before God. You do not. And I think this this was something brought out so clear to me this past week. You do not need to exercise your liberty of conscience before people in order to be happy and joyful as a Christian. Do you believe that? Do you think that exercising your liberty of conscience is what makes for a happy and joyful life. Well, you have just contradicted these words. Happy is he who does not condemn himself by what he approves. And how does that happen? It happens when you force everyone to bow to your liberty, to kowtow to your conscience, even with all their doubts, and weak convictions. You bring them into sin because they are sinning against their conscience because whatever is not from faith is sin. And you, the stronger one, with the knowledge of your liberties, recognizes that that it isn't sin. Well, they're not there yet. And if they do or follow you or struggle with what you are doing, their weakness in their faith and understanding will lead them into sin. Parents know this all too well in their own homes. How many times have we had 
our teens come to us wanting to do something that we do not permit in our homes, wanting to do something that they see secular friends or perhaps even other Christian friends doing, and they come and they say, can we do this? And we say, no, no, we don't do that in our home. And then the, the, that statement that every teen has made in their life, well, so-and-so is doing it, why can't I? <laughs> what, what Paul's saying here, it's just because you can do it. There's no reason to do it. And if you think that exercising your liberty of conscience is what you need to do to be happy, then you're enslaved to it. Because your joy and your happiness rests not in that. That word happy is the same word in the Beatitudes translated blessed. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who are persecuted. It doesn't say blessed are those who exercise their liberty of conscience. It doesn't. But it does say blessed are those who for the sake of their weaker brother and sister do not exercise their liberty of conscience. Love them. Don't condemn yourself. Love them. Pray for the grace of patience that you need. Pray for the lowliness of Christ that you need to try and make to, to keep yourself from trying to make them conform to your conscience. Bear patiently with them. Help them to grow and mature in their faith. And understand that this is not an overnight thing. This is forbearing with one another so that the unity and bonds of God's people may indeed be seen. And isn't that what we are told in Ephesians? Excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 4. When he says, "Walk worthy of the calling by which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace." Because there's one one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And we're, we're acknowledging that. And with the law of love at work, my friends, this in God's grace and blessing will prevail to bring joy and happiness to your, cell, to your soul and to the body of Christ. That's what we are pursuing. The law of love with our conscience. May the Lord grant us the grace we need to exercise this to His glory. Let us pray.